From La Trobe, Asia and the Australia-India Institute, this is India Rising. I'm Matt Smith. In this podcast mini-series, we'll be looking at the country of India, how it works, how it doesn't, and how it got to be the place that it is today. Today, I'm joined by two guests. I'm Robin Jeffrey. I'm an Emeritus Professor of La Trobe University. And also in the studio with us... I'm Ian Wolford, and I am lecturer in Hindi language and literature at La Trobe University. Episode 5, A Land of Languages. There are 22 official languages in India, but more than 780 have been recognised. It can be a challenge to communicate across the country, and while the most common language is Hindi, there's communication of all sorts in a variety of dialects and scripts. This is India Rising. So there's an old Indian saying that I found it says uh, the taste of water changes every mile language or dialect changes every four miles uh, Ian I'm told that this is actually an Indian saying can you give yeah, it to me in Hindi very, and a um, very well-known saying just as water changes the taste of the water changes as you travel from one district to to another and when I hear this this saying I, I think especially rural areas the way water is tied to the land languages as well mm. and, and language changes just just as often how much language diversity is there in India can you go from one area to the other and not know how to speak to your neighbors essentially more important, in some ways, you can go from one boundary in India to another and not be able to read the street signs or the signs on the buses yeah. because the scripts are different. But within a language area, I suppose area of greatest familiarity used, used to be Kerala. Kerala is not a big state. It only has 35 million people and it's only about 300 kilometers long. But if you go north to south in Kerala, you'll encounter very noticeable dialects of the language. Malayalam is the language they speak in Kerala, but there are distinctive accents in Malayalam. And of course, Ian will tell us that in Hindi, there are so many uh, wonderful variations that Bombay movies have made famous in some ways, I think. How many languages are there in India? Can you give me a bit of a, a breakdown? It depends on how you categorize a language, I suppose. And there's different types of languages and families of languages, but wh- what are the numbers? The official, yeah. 22 official languages plus English is uh, the way it would be done. But those are languages that for political reasons have been given official status and are often used as the language of administration in individual states. They're called scheduled languages in the constitution that give some sort of official status Mm. and certain government resources are put into promoting these languages. And while India itself doesn't technically have a national language. Uh, states generally do have uh, official languages that are often pulled from that list of, of 22 languages. Just to give an example, uh, I have a friend who's a member of the Indian Administrative Service, the National Cadre of Bureaucrats. He was born in Tamil Nadu, so his mother tongue is Tamil. He was educated partly in English. He got into the Indian Administrative Service through competitive examination, where he had to have Hindi, and he was deputed to the Gujarat of the service, the state of Gujarat. So he spent a lot of his career minuting and reading minutes in Gujarati. So he can work in four scripts and four different languages. And that wouldn't be uncommon amongst people of that kind of all India background and all India needs Mm, in mm. the way they communicate with people. But are are the languages substantially different though from each other? If we're talking about Malayalam, which is the language that Robin has mentioned, and Hindi, which I work in, they're, they're not only substantially different 
different. There, there's not really any way to to compare them. They're completely different language wow. families. Uh, they may share some uh, vocabulary in that uh, Malayalam and other South Indian languages have been borrowed heavily from Sanskrit in the same language family as North Indian languages such as Gujarati, Hindi, Punjabi, various Rajasthani languages, Bihari languages. But in terms of their grammar and whatnot, they're they're completely different. Mm. And uh, across India in general, you've got 780 catalogued languages. I'm happy with that with that number. If a linguist came out to me and said that there's 3,000 languages in India, I wouldn't have any basis to argue with with that number either. Yeah. Uh, certainly, the the number of 22 in the constitution doesn't cover all of India's languages, even if you just started counting them easily. Mm. Uh, so, I, I, 780 sounds fine to me. Yeah, yeah, second only to Papua New Guinea. I believe that. Yeah, yeah. I see. <laughs> How much of a a linguistic headache? does this make for India then? It's, it's got to be really challenging to talk across all those different populations. Yeah. Is there even an attempt to do that or do they just go, go Hindi or go home? Well, there, there absolutely is in that I'd said that Hindi doesn't have an, an official language. I'm sure some people hearing that might have jumped and thought that wasn't correct uh, because the, the government has labelled English and uh, Hindi written in the Devanagari script as official languages of the Indian government. So all official government communications, all laws have to be written in generally both of, of those languages. So say communication with a state like Kerala would generally take place in English, Hindi would be less favored. Mm. That was a decision not long after independence made. Presumably, my understanding is with the thought that they would transition to Hindi only, but there have been various blockades to that happening. But it was an attempt to address exactly what you're saying, was we have a, a, a very multilingual society, and and there was definitely an idea at the time, and an idea that some people promote now, that there needs to be one language. It certainly is not the case, and you've described this as a kind of problem. Robin, what are your thoughts on that? I think the film industry and the progress of... Uh, some kinds of media over the last 40 or 50 years have certainly changed the language environment a lot. Mm -hmm. I think the popularity of Hindi film and Hindi television serials has enabled it to break out of areas which were its traditional homeland and be understood and perhaps even appreciated more in the south and in eastern India, where Bengali ruled in eastern India. In the south, there were the great Dravidian languages. Modern media have changed some of this because Hindi has been the dominant language for entertainment. So much has been invested. Yeah, I, w I would credit pop culture and, and Hindi cinema, in, especially as one of the reasons why the anti-Hindi riots of, of the 1960s that you, that you saw in Tamil Nadu, then sort of as a protest against the imposition of Hindi uh, on a population which had no historical connection to the language. It certainly wasn't their mother tongue. That doesn't seem to be the general sentiment now. And I think this is one of the things that, that's breaking that down. Uh, I teach Hindi at a uh, university in, in Australia, and I have students from Tamil or Malayalam backgrounds whose, whose parents are quite happy that they're studying Hindi at university. I would credit Bollywood as, as one of the things that sort of softened that resistance. Yeah. Mm. yeah. How much of the population speak Hindi? 40% is... As a first language, and I suppose quite a lot more as second, yeah. third language kind of... And it's, yeah, it's quite difficult to, to measure these things because even how to define mm -hmm. Hindi uh, can be quite difficult. It doesn't include the, the broader language that is Hindi, Urdu. Hindi and Urdu, at least on the colloquial level, are identical. I can speak to people in Hindi and Urdu, but not be changing anything I do, but be complimented on speaking one or, or the other. <laughs> and if you define the language that 
broadly, and there's certainly good reason to do so, then the number is much higher. There's certainly a lot of people in Bihar where I work, especially of an older generation, they won't speak Hindi, but they can understand it completely. So I'll have a conversation where I'm speaking in Hindi, and they'll be replying it in a, in a local language. But they're still intimately familiar with the language and can, can understand it. So it's quite tricky. Mm. We get kind of a, a flavor for just how important Hindi is as the major language from the audited newspaper circulations, which um, Hindi was selling about 22 million papers a day, mm. daily newspapers. English was way behind at about 7 million. Then the other languages followed after that. So that involves uh, investment in advertising because newspapers are only produced because somebody eventually makes some money out of them. Mm. But nevertheless, it, it is an indication, I think. That number can really surprise people, but I I just put it down often to even just the, the huge rural readership in Hindi newspapers. You go to any village well, in the Hindi-speaking area and you get they get the Prabhat Khabar or Dainik Bhaskar or Dainik Jagran. A household will get all three. Yeah. I mean, even just the numbers you mentioned now, it surprised me even though I knew them. Surprised you because too low or too high? The Hindi newspaper circulation is so much higher than English. Ah, because yes. Because we think of English as a language that somehow unites India, but of course it's spoken fluently by less than 20% of the population. Yeah, yeah, and 8 million, eight million dailies a day mm. uh, is quite a lot of newspapers. <laughs> that would be uh, probably seven times more newspapers than go out every morning in Australia. So. Oh, they'd be thrilled with oh, that sort of number. It's yeah, always fun yeah. to compare the numbers to Australia because <laughs> the same thing, the, 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 same, uh, the, the entire population of Australia rides India Rail per day, I think I, I read so somewhere. <laughs> so even if it's not true, it sounds true. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So UNESCO classified at 197 of India's languages as in danger. They're in danger of becoming extinct, so you're going to lose that language diversity. How much of a concern is this to India, and does India try and maintain the languages that it has? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of these languages are tribal languages spoken by small populations, and mm. yes, there are very small numbers of speakers left, uh, especially in the northeast side. Think of the map of India up near Assam is where a lot of these languages are spoken. Some of them are from Tibeto-Burman language families that I yeah. can't speak very knowledgeably about. Uh, but there's certainly quite a few linguists uh, within India and foreign linguists working to preserve those languages. And you ask how much of it is a concern. And from people that I've talked to from those communities, as in any community that uh, has a language that's classified as endangered, it's, it's a very big concern for them. Sometimes they even describe it as a human rights issue, their right to preserve and use and even be educated in their own languages. Is there a lot that can be done to maintain those sort of things? I mean, you know, uh, in schools, the state language is taught and Hindi is taught and maybe English is taught, depending on if you want to take those classes. But for any other language, you've got to rely on the household and the community to maintain those links. Yeah, these languages are not languages that uh, education generally takes place in. And even in language, languages that I'm more familiar with, such as Bhojpuri, Mayatali, Magadhi, these are languages of Bihar that aren't endangered, but they're still not languages of education. For one of these endangered languages, it's going to be even more so the case, because possible student might come to school and a teacher might not even know the language uh, that the student was, was brought up in. But you have a child who grows up in a village in Bihar, they're speaking Mayatali with their parents up until age of five. They'll get to school and the instruction is in Hindi, which is related to Maitli, but quite different in a, in a few levels. And there's a, a tension there of the, the tension between uh, Hindi as a, as a national language 
or a, a some sort of dominant yeah. dominance probably a better word and mm. these local uh, languages yeah. uh, in terms of education I'd say yeah I think many of these endangered languages in India their position is not dissimilar from Aboriginal languages in Australia Absolutely. yeah I'm, I'm there thinking these problems are not unique to India but That's having my... said that India with 22 scheduled recognized official mm-hmm. languages mm-hmm. that's quite diverse and that must give a significant problem to communication for the country there are i think is it 11 or 12 scripts including english mm. are in use and you'll find all of those scripts on the currency notes wow that's the striking thing i mean india is europe in a sense but in europe you can go from madrid to finland and read the signs on the streets and the names on the bus routes and so on but in india if you go from trivandrum to kashmir or to shillong you're going to have to read about five different scripts before you get from one place to the other You don't normally hear people describe the language situation in Europe the way Matt described it in India as a problem. Uh, well, even was though, problem an inaccurate word on my part then? Well, that's what I I'm, I'm just want to yeah. suggest. With Europe, its linguistic diversity is, is generally people see it as a strength. And in India, often it's described just like you do as something that has to be dealt with as a problem. And I, and I think it is. it just has to do with this notion that uh, it's partly because of the post-colonial situation India finds itself in, this idea that it took it took the Mughals or it took the British to somehow unify uh, India. No one says that about Europe, that, my God, it wasn't until the 20th century that they even got their act together and, and, and sort of came together as a p- political unit. We take it for granted that France was something separate from Germany, was something separate from Italy. And no one sort of questions that or says, why did it take them so long to get put together? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but when you look at the certainly population but even just landmass, I mean, India is, is many Europe's all over, I would say. I think the population of India is two and a half or three times greater yeah. than the population yes. of the and, European Union. And mm. I guess I would just say that in, in the same way that people generally don't look at Europe's language situation and their first comment isn't, this is a problem. Uh, I, it's it's there's it's a curious thing that that's the first thing people think of for Indian. You're certainly not the first person to to do so because it problem even, was probably yeah. the wrong word on my part. Maybe challenge. Well, even within yeah. even within India, it's mm. it's it's described as a problem, especially in terms of educational policy. Mm. Uh, but there's obviously all kinds of views. There's a poem by the late poet Kedar Nath Singh who, who passed away just uh, a year ago. He's from the Bhojpuri region in India, from a village in Uttar Pradesh. Beautiful poetry. It's quite simple, but one of them where he talks about uh, it's called Desh or Ghar the world or the country and the home. And he compares Hindi, which he says, Hindi mera deshe, Hindi is my nation, my country. Bhojpuri mera ghar, Bhojpuri is my home. And he, he goes through this poem and describes how you, you go back and forth between the home and the country. Sometimes a bit of one gets left in a bit of the other, but he ends by saying, I love them both. Look at this trouble that I've had, ki, uh, that for the past 70 years, I've been searching for one within the other. Mm. So he does the same thing that you did. He says there's a problem, there's a difficulty within this, but he describes it in this extremely loving, extremely loving terms. It's part of his whole identity. I often go back to that poem for myself, because even though obviously I'm fluent in Hindi, I've done a PhD, in Hindi literature and have lived there. I'm not multilingual the way someone who grows up in India is that, that Robin was describing, that can they just move back and forth between these scripts, between these different situations. Mm. And I think just a poem like that sort of helps me think of that mindset, I think is a good way to look at it. So problem isn't necessarily the wrong word, but there's also opportunities there. I often think that Australia and, and India would have a lot to learn from each other in terms of how to handle multilingualism because they approach the problem uh, very differently, mm-hmm. uh, especially in terms of education. I think Anglophones are particularly bad 
in my generation for not being able to imagine people who grow up just thinking that two and probably three languages are natural. That's yes. just yep. the way they're the way you're taught to behave. You talk one way to your grandmother and some way rather different to your playmates and so on. Mm. And uh, that would be the case in parts of Europe, I think, even today, mm. and certainly in India. Uh, Ian will have as good stories as I have, but I once met a young boy, uh, eight or nine or ten years old, selling oranges in Hyderabad, and uh, he had just dealt with some Japanese tourists, and I asked him in my broken Hindi uh, how many languages he spoke, and he said he could sell oranges in eight different languages, uh. German and Japanese, <laughs> Telugu, Urdu, and so on. He had so a very forth. functional view of uh, language. Of course, yeah, for I mean, him. it was a yeah. limited vocabulary. Well, that's but, wonderful. Uh, the orange and eight languages isn't a bad start, you know. You how, go many on oranges, how many languages can you sell oranges <laughs> in is a great yes. question. Yeah. yeah. So how much does Hindi dominate the conversation then of, of India language? Especially in the past four years where the current government has been making more steps than it been taking in the past to, to promote the use of Hindi, both within India and even abroad. Mm. Uh, I think we even describes what they're doing as, as sort of Hindi nationalism, this idea that Hindi really should be a national language for India. There's all sorts of pros and cons are described by this. There are definitely some communities in non-Hindi speaking areas that, that describe this as Hindi imposition. That's how they, this word imposition is is used quite a bit. Yeah. And there's an argument that's happened since uh, independence that in order to function as a nation, there should be one language uh, and it should be Hindi for various reasons reasons that they, they picked mainly the number of speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, and this debate still seems to be going on. Yeah, to the extent where there's there's protests occasionally and, and that kind of activity. The main problem with the way Hindi is being pushed, and I say this as a language teacher and it, it, as a teacher of foreign language, for the, the Hindi wallahs who are trying to make Hindi the national language in this way, this lack of compassion or that might even be the right word, or at least understanding of how foreign Hindi is to someone from Kerala or Tamil Nadu. It is a foreign language. So there's almost a certain amount of scolding that you don't know your own mother tongue, yeah. that, that you hear people saying. And it's quite unfair. A Tamil person studying Hindi might have an accent. They might not be completely fluent at first. But if there was a, a better understanding within India that this is a foreign in a certain way, and this is one where I feel like language teachers outside of India could sort of just help with the idea of reminding people that there's nothing inherently Indian about Hindi in that it is a language like any other language. Mm. It's not something that runs in your blood. Uh, and this might even be controversial to some people, but it is. But I say this as someone who's seen people from all sorts of countries, all sorts of backgrounds learn the language. And that someone from a non-Hindi background learning it is, is putting in an effort. They may be willing to do it, but I think a bit more understanding and compassion of the difficulties involved in, in language learning would, would help that. Mm. The other thing I think to say is that the other major languages, the dozen or more major economic languages, languages in which material is produced, newspapers, books, mm. and so on. Yeah. These languages are, are very, very substantial. I mean, Malayalam speakers are 35 million. Well, that's 10 million more potential buyers of Malayalam books and periodicals than mm. we have in the whole of Australia. Exactly. Tamil, Telugu, all the South Indian languages are much greater than that. So there are huge markets here. And markets, of course, help to sustain languages by sponsoring the written and acted and mm. sung products of language. 
not just markets and products, but the languages you've named, it, it's hard to forget because of the sheer number of people we're talking about. Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam, languages with centuries old histories, just literature that would blow your mind. You could spend your whole life studying 10 years worth of literature from, from one of these languages and not even touch the surface of it. These are global languages spoken around the world. These are substantial, important things uh, that, that uh, and it's hard to remember that, I think, because of that Europe-India comparison. We mm -hmm. sort of imagine, oh, they're just sort of languages stuck there in India. It's like, no, these are essence of culture in of itself. Indeed. And there's, I gather, uh, Ian, you may have already read it or at least seen reviews of it. There's a book come out in the last year or so by a wonderful scholar called David Shulman ah, yes. uh, on the history of Tamil language. It's a brilliant book. Which will perhaps play a part in uh, achieving what Ian's suggesting, which is to uh, develop a greater sympathy for the richness of India's languages within India itself. Scholars from outside, like Shulman, have understood that for their whole careers. But uh, for a popular understanding within the, uh, India itself, it will be good if others begin to appreciate mm. the richness of their fellow citizens' mother tongues. Well, you identified that there's a, a number of different Indian scripts that you have for these languages. So how has the printing industry coped with this amount of diversity in languages and uh, has it influenced what's being printed and what knowledge there is out there and i suppose has language influenced how the printing industries worked in india well again it comes back to economics but uh, it has indeed mm. because uh, the indian scripts are more intricate than uh, the Roman script that we're accustomed to. Indian scripts are also perfectly phonetic. Would that be pretty close to? Yeah, the, uh, the scripts are not alphabets like Roman script. There's, I think, syllabary is, is the correct term. Is it? It's a yes. term I've seen somewhere. I, yeah. I should know better. But yes, if you have a character in, in Devanagari script, which is one I know best, there, yeah. there's only one way to pronounce it. Yes, yeah. Unlike English, where mm -hmm. you put PH together and what? What English, does that mean? English, Phosphorus? Yeah, the Roman script is not, does not suit English language the, well at all. But this was a huge problem for printing because modern printing as we know it in the European world depended on movable metal types. And to make sufficient number of movable metal types mm -hmm. to do justice to the sophistication of Hindi would have taken probably 900 different little jelly molds with an individually different character in each of them yeah, to yeah. make a full case of Hindi scripts. Very expensive, very finicky to do. Is there simplified Hindi? That's right. And uh, certainly that was true of Malayalam. The difference has come in the last 40 years with offset printing, where mm. it's not metal pressing against mm -hmm. paper. It's a chemical process that transfers an image to a, a, a running sheet of paper and the computer. And that's helped to transform the publishing industry in all these languages. You see a huge explosion of all Indian language newspaper and periodical publication from the late 1970s into the 80s, and then it rockets up mm. in the 1990s. Well, just a logical extension of that in the last five, six years, you see just how much more easy it is to, to use various Indian languages online and, and, you know, Google and Twitter and all these things, they've given all this language support. You know, when I started typing things, Microsoft Word, at least on the, the Mac, had very limited support. Now I can do all kinds of things. Not that it matters, but you couldn't do hashtags in Twitter in Hindi before. They've added support for that, presumably because there's money in this in, in some place. So we're seeing just an explosion of language activity happening 
now yes. uh, much more easily. And I think what for the last ten or fifteen years it's been possible even on an old fashioned uh, with a nine second keys. brick. Yep. Yeah, an <laughs> yeah. old fashioned brick. You could, you could type SMS. in. You, you yeah. could SMS even in Hindi script. Although yeah. generally people favored Roman script for that, even if they're writing in Hindi. That's changing now. I'm seeing a lot more people uh-huh. uh, working uh, online in in Devanagari yes, script yeah. uh, because it just feels yeah. natural and it's enjoyable and and it's what people are used to. Well, I think even eight or nine years ago it became possible to SMS in a and Oriya mm. would be a big language, but nevertheless commercially perhaps the least attractive mm-hmm. of the major Indian languages for an advertiser, an investor, somebody who was looking for a return on their investment in some way of making language uh, readable. Mm. What is the reception like of Hindi and Indian languages at large outside of India? Is there an appreciation of it? Is there, I mean, I, I know I've got a biased audience here. Uh, is there an understanding of it? Let's say just from perspective of Melbourne, which I only know for the past four years. So the obvious place that people look is the Indian community within uh, Melbourne. And you get various uh, literary and poetry societies. People get together, they recite poetry, they write poetry. Uh, and there's a very uh, active, lively, several groups within Melbourne that, that do that. And then from the other side that I know very well, is obviously on the education side. As a lecturer in Hindi, I teach students, most of them, certainly in the, in the first year class, are from non-Indian backgrounds backgrounds. And they're often very excited to start learning language. So there's definitely an appreciation there. Mm. Why are they learning Hindi? Oh, we get all kinds of reasons. My favorite students are the ones who just saw that the university uh, offers Hindi and they think that looks neat and they don't have a reason other than they just showed up. And no, that's they're sort good. of my, that's they're, good. They're yeah. often my favorite to, to work with because I think uh, that's the best reason to go ahead and study something when you're at university. Some of these students are often studying, they'll be studying sciences, they'll be studying law, they'll be studying something where language isn't necessarily an obvious choice for them and they weren't thinking but they thought well I have an elected to fill I can do something let's see what that's about excellent excellent reasons Mm. and is there enough attention given to Hindi and Indian languages you say that you you teach it but that's a very rare thing in Australia there's not a lot of universities that teach Hindi is there no and there's two universities in Australia that offer degree programs in Hindi that would be La Trobe University uh, in Melbourne and the the ANU Australian National University has a, a fantastic uh, program in Hindi and also in Sanskrit yeah uh, generally other than that there aren't any not just in Hindi, but any other Indian languages. It's very difficult at the university level to get any trainings, but Robin might be able to talk more about how that came to be. Well, it's never been easy to get Asian languages taught in Australia. It's been Mm. difficult in all areas, and it's not getting any easier, which is paradoxical in some ways, except perhaps for Chinese, where parents uh, think that if their children learn Chinese, that may give them some advantage in the world we're moving into. Do you think that this is something that needs to be addressed? Uh, I'm not so much talking exclusively about higher education because you might want to burn too many bridges by talking about that, but just in education or amongst Australia as a whole that we should be more aware about Indian languages or at least about Hindi. Robin, I, I think, was correct to broaden it to Asian languages in, mm. in general. Having only been here four years, I can't speak to all of it, although it definitely seems that Australia every now and then as a whole wakes up to the very obvious fact that Australia is situated right next to Asia. and it, But separate from that, there are large numbers of communities within Australia that speak Asian languages as, as a first language. 
There are certainly moves to introduce Asian languages or strengthen Asian language programs in in primary schools and and various primary and secondary schools. Um, We're seeing pushes for that uh, here in Victoria. And your question was, does this need to be done? I think absolutely it it Mm. needs to be done. There's data we can point to to why learning uh, any second language is important. I think the problem with India, and it does... Yeah, I, Matt, I almost chast- I sort of chastise you for using the word problem. No, I was about to say, you just but, use that word. No, but I'm saying <laughs> it, the, the problem, it, there's a confusion because when people say India, there are so many languages in India, and I've heard this quite a bit, so why bother? Mm. Or, or how could we pick just one? Or how, you know, how can we do anything and isn't English enough to, to get by? First, I would say, well, the how can we pick one doesn't make sense because Australia, is, there's all kinds of institutions. I think it'd be wonderful if we had some schools teaching one Indian language and some schools teaching another. I, I and look, even even just picking one is a start. I think it's definitely a start. The yeah. other is English simply isn't enough in India. When I'm working in Bihar and I'm traveling between cities and villages and I, I'll go a month at a time without having a long conversation without anyone in English. It's, mm. Even people who speak English, they're going to be more comfortable in their mother tongue. But separate from that, even people talk about conducting business with India, and there's the idea, well, that's going to happen in English. I think, Robin, you already brought up the point. Well, we're cutting off huge markets by doing that. Uh, if we're looking at Kerala and if, if people operating in, in Malayalam, why aren't we trying to engage with them? The second is, even if people are conducting conversation in English, we haven't brought up the, this term Hinglish, which is a whole other language of itself, this <laughs> combination of Hindi and English. It's very rightly, linguists are starting to, to see this as a, as a language in its own right. It follows very certain rules. But even a conversation that's happening in English, even just a passing familiarity with various Indian languages can, can give people a, a, a leg up in communication in business. Or just example I had just talking to one of my students today, it was our, our last day of class, and he's a, a third year student of mine studying orthoptics, study of disorders of the eye, diseases of the eye. So he's going to a very specific field here in Melbourne. And what he found is that people are looking to hire people with diverse language needs. So this student has a Malayalam background, has studied Hindi, and obviously speaks English. So he's at least trilingual now. He's sitting with a patient who is fluent in English, but they're from India, and they don't know how to say something like, I have cloudiness in my eye. Mm. So they revert to Malayalam or Hindi to explain that. How would you say that if you were learning a language? That's not something you're going to learn right away. So even just little things like that can give you a boost up. So there's we could point to so many reasons why diverse uh, language training is, is required in Australia. Maybe on a very simple level, if I want to drag it down to here, it sounds like a very beautiful language to learn Hindi. And I, and I imagine that there's a lot of different diversity and a lot you could learn just by simply being able to understand yeah. more of it. This is the reason to learn any language. This is the reason to learn one of the endangered languages that you talked of that may only have a handful of, of speakers. It's why I have my students read poetry because it actually keeps them going. It, show, it shows you what the creative potential of a language is and it helps us think about our own language. I appreciate English poetry better because I've studied Hindi poetry and I found some of my students feel, feel the same way. Mm. Uh, the, the beauty is the reason, absolutely the reason we do this. You've been listening to India Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia and the Australia India Institute. It featured Robin Jeffrey, Ian Wolford, and I'm Matt Smith, your host and producer. This has been a podcast from La Trobe University. Thanks for listening.